0: This is a Headgum Podcast.
1: Vultures Good One podcast is sponsored by Visible, a new phone service that gives you unlimited everything, including data at speeds up to 5 megabits per second, on Verizon's 4G LTE network for just $4 a month, all in. I am Vulture Senior Editor Jesse David Fox, and welcome to Good One, a podcast about jokes and those who write them. Late night, late night. It's on your TVs, it's in the news, it's on our movie screens. But how does it happen? That question is the subject of this week's episode. Earlier this month at the 92nd Street Y, Vulture and Good One put together a panel of late night writers that together accounted for every late night show that shoots in New York. We had Ziwe Fumido from Jesus and Mero and before that, The Rundown with Robin Thede, Josh Goldman from Jesus and Mero and previously Last Week Tonight with John Oliver, Jenny Hagel from Late Night with Seth Meyers, Kat Radley from The Daily Show with Trevor Noah, Nicole Silverberg from Full Frontal with Samantha B. Kate Sidley from The Late Show with Stephen Colbert, and Rebecca Shaw from The Tonight Show starring Jimmy Fallon. Together, we got to the bottom of what it's like working in Late Night in 2019. Wish you could have been there? Well, I have good news and good news. First, the good news. We're going to hold an L.A. version of the panel on June 27th at Neue House. So if you live in L.A. or the surrounding areas, please come. And now, the good news. If it wasn't already apparent, you're about to listen to the 90 structure Street Y panel, which I have to admit, as a person who's been moderating panels for years, was really like the big time for me. So I'm so happy to be able to share this with you. So, take it away, me. Hello. Uh, welcome to the Late Night panel. We're going to talk about writing for Late Night, which you all do, Greg. Great. Great. Um, so let's uh, start at the very beginning. Uh, growing up, what was all your relationships to Late Night television?
2: I'm trying to think. My, the first memory I have of Late Night TV is my brother and I trying to stay up late enough to watch SNL. And mostly failing, like we would like around nine, ten o'clock start to like drink a lot of soda, um, and then start to like try to scare each other, to try to see if we could stay up until eleven thirty. But it just seemed like the coolest like goal to try to like. It felt like you got to peek on the other side of this grown-up curtain if you could manage to stay up that late. Yeah. So that's probably my first relationship with it.
1: Anyone else have a specific show they watched?
3: I remember I discovered Conan in seventh grade, so I became obsessed with Conan O'Brien's show watch that whenever I could stay up late enough and then also Saturday Night Live I specifically watched like I liked like the cheerleader sketches like I was at the point where I had certain sketches I liked and I'd be like ugh boring they're doing one of these right now but so I love like the Spartan cheerleaders and like Conan O'Brien those were like um, and Letterman I watched him too specifically on Thanksgiving when he'd uh, guess which pies his mom made that was my favorite thing um, so those three shows specifically I like like honed on to immediately.
1: Did any of you dream of working up on late night?
3: No.
4: <laughs>
3: <laughs>
4: well,
1: no further
5: questions. <laughs> so no, I, I didn't. You spoke for leave. <laughs> I did. I, I so I started my first late night uh, that I loved was was Saturday Night Live as well. And I remember I'm uh, Nancy Kerrigan is from my small hometown in Massachusetts, and she hosted uh, after the Olympics, and I remember being like, that's sure that's the coolest thing I've ever seen like she's from over there and, um, and then I, I remember in high school being like oh the daily show that, that's like that's the shit like I, can I swear uh, I actually don't know okay I'll stop I heard a Yes, <laughs> and, and, and just being like that's, that's like the impossible dream of, yeah. so I did like starting then I was like well that's the thing I would do if, if but that's like it felt like being like that's what I'd do if magic were real you know <laughs>
6: I feel like I didn't know that writers existed for other shows other than SNL. Like, I knew who SNL writers were, and I knew who the hosts were of shows, uh, and I just absorbed the taste that my parents had. So my parents loved SNL, they loved um, Conan, they loved Jon Stewart, and so those are the people who I looked up to and... But it it took a long time before I understood that comedy was a career at all, let alone writing for someone who's in front of camera. And I was, like, a big-time, like, theater kid. And I was like, well, that's all nice, but I'm actually born for the stage. Uh, (laughs) And so (laughs) it took a while for me to, like, come down off my high horse in that regard. Yeah, I similarly... I think comedy was born out
0: of not being able to crack it on the Broadway stage. Um... But no, comedy and knowing about comedy was, I think, such social capital early on. Um, when I wasn't being very well received um, in middle school, I remember coming in and being like, have you guys seen this, uh, this Will Ferrell guy? He's really, he's got something going on. Um, and I remember that being very sort of formative, was realizing that this was this thing that everyone, regardless of who they were, could identify with and relate to.
7: When I was in high school, I watched um, The Colbert Report all the time, every single day of my life, and I was like, I can't believe you can say all these bad words on television. How do I get that job? So I've always kind of wanted to say bad words on television, and I'm really lucky that I get to do that.
1: Uh, I'm sure there are people here who would love to be the people on on stage. Uh, so uh, how did you get the job that you have? And it may be a Quick show of hands, which one of you started stand-up, stand-ups, hands, raised, and then which are improv, sketch? Ooh. All right. So, but beyond that, what is sort of your paths or specific anyone's path to the jobs they currently have?
8: Um, I, I got hired before having any sort of representation or anything like that. So my path was, I think, probably similar to a lot of people on this stage. It was through the... Uh, the group of people that I met that also had the same dreams, um, you know doing sketch and just taking as many classes as I could, doing as much performance as I could, writing as much. you just meet other people who work really hard who you get along with, and we sort of became a support group and still are for each other and yeah. and you know one of them writes for your show, <laughs> and you know if somebody found out about a packet we 'd all do that packet we 'd all read read each other 's stuff you know they' It's a lot of hustle, but that's the hustle that it takes to get the sort of job, especially if you don't have traditional routes
6: available to you. I I, I got my job off of a packet, which is like a, an application. Essentially, you write a specific sample for for the specific show. Uh, ideally, you aren't just like recycling jokes, and it's always reflective of what the show is going to be. So, you know, if it's a show like Fallon, where there are Monologue jokes and desk bits and sketches—that's part of the packet. But something like Sam B, uh, I had to write a, a what we call a headline script, which is like a script. Um, it's actually very smart. It's a script based off of a headline uh, about the Charlottesville, uh, uh, the Unite the Right march, which is um, uplifting and fun. And woo. <laughs> uh, and, and so you do a ton of packets and I think I applied for every show that everyone writes for except for Seth Meyers because they weren't interested um, and you just, you, you do a ton of packets and you kind of, as you're doing the packets you're like, God, this is like pulling teeth. If I get this job, that'll probably be really hard for me. Uh, and usually those packets aren't as strong. And then hopefully the packet where you're like, God, this is really, I get the voice of this host. I like this subject matter. I like the point of view. This isn't like a huge stretch where I have to put my voice through a machine for the host to be able to say it on the other side. And that's how I felt doing Sam's packet. And I was just very lucky that, uh, that I ended up being read and that they liked the packet.
7: Oh, I I did a lot of packets as well, but I think the most helpful thing for me for getting into late night was actually the internet shout out because I would like this dude when I was like in college, someone encouraged me to just tweet. And this was when I had like a hundred followers and no one cared and no one liked anything I said. And it was really actually pathetic. I can't believe I continued to do it for years. Um... Feel bad for me. Uh, <laughs> um, but eventually I like, built a following on Twitter and I was able to connect with Robin Thede, who was my first um, late night boss, and then Dee Zamero. I connected with them through Twitter. And like years ago I would email them and be like, hey guys, if you ever need a writer, I'd love to do it. And they would ignore me, my emails. But then eventually I got this job. So um, email people.
3: Yeah, I think for me it's the same. I was doing stand-up, improv, and sketch and one of my friends on my sketch team found out The Daily Show had a packet, and he knew that, like, he and I were both, like, with a group of friends just doing packets and interested in practicing monologue jokes. And so I got the packet, sent it in, not even knowing if they'd read it, because I wasn't, like, they didn't send it to me. I just kind of stole it. And so luckily they did read it, and then that's how, you got, um, how I got hired. But that was after doing, like, many other packets for all your shows as well. <laughs>
1: I want to talk about a typical day, but considering you guys all work in different jobs with different schedules, I-, I want to try something which I think might be a disaster, but I'm going to go through windows of times, and then you'll all say what happens in the window at times on your show on show nights. So, at the
7: same time? Well, not exactly, the time.
1: in an order. Yeah. Very jazzy. Because uh, some, some of your shows are daily, uh, in the title daily, and some of them are weekly, and currently Jesus is bi-weekly. Weekly or
7: double the weekly?
1: Double the weekly. Double the weekly. Uh, So we're (laughs) going to go... (laughs) Weekly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Can we steal that? (laughs) So we'll go in order uh, how a day goes. So the the mornings, when you get in, are you sort of looking at news immediately? Uh, Is there a pitch meeting in the morning?
2: Uh, On Monday morning at 9.30, we go around the room and we each pitch one topical thing kind of based off the news of the weekend. And then I'm on the monologue team, so immediately then I start... Trying desperately to get to generate enough monologue jokes to turn in at our next, our first deadline.
3: Uh, I go to the bathroom, and then uh, at 10 a.m. is when our meeting starts, and that's when we watch news clips of all the main major stories happening that day and we're encouraged to like riff and make jokes in the room some of those might end up making it to the show or kind of get an idea for where we want to go with it and so that meeting after that is when Trevor goes in a room and with other people um, like producers and stuff and kind of really picks okay this is what the show is going to be about today.
0: Um, We have monologue bits due in the morning so that's when we do uh, sketches Games, anything that relates to the news of uh, from we tapes the last show until the morning. Um, so that's usually what we're spending most of our morning thinking about.
5: Uh, I, I defer to Z-Way.
7: I'm Z-Way. <laughs> so we get in, we get in, I get in at ten because I don't like to be nervous for our meeting at ten. I don't like to be late for our meeting at ten thirty. At ten thirty we meet and we talk about the topical things but really any kind of news that just floats our boat it's very expressive <laughs> What would you agree, Josh? I feel like so Josh is my boss technically, so i'm i 'm shuddered right now i 'm very nervous, very stressed, and if you guys could support me with more laughter, that would be great.
5: You can see I have two iron fists, so it's really it's a real rough place in the Desis and Mara writers room. I would say the only thing I would change is that on show days we we start a little early, so we 're in at yeah. nine for like a a meeting that's like, okay, is there any story that we want to boot from the lineup that we'd come up with the the previous day's afternoon or uh, is there anything that we want to add that we kind of felt bubbled up overnight that feels more contemporary
7: and shows are monday and thursday 11 p.m on showtime
3: (laughs) it's like has she been missing the 9 a.m meetings and you've never told her (laughs)
5: no ziway and i are both like compulsively early arrivers
3: i get so stressed uh at the late show
8: our day starts at either 8 30 or 9 depending on the day um, and we actually have two pitch meetings in the morning. Uh, one is a smaller pitch meeting with our head writers, and then we have a larger uh, pitch meeting with Stephen.
6: Uh, our show, as I'm sure you all know, is on Wednesdays. Mm-hmm. So uh, our our week is kind of bisected in that way. Monday and Tuesday are working on one half of the show, and, t- and Thursday and Friday are working for the preparing for the next week's show. So on Monday we come in. Uh, I am <laughs> ten minutes late. Every day, uh, it doesn't matter what I do or how hard I try. I'm in at 10:10, 10, 10, uh, which is perfect because our first meeting is at 10:15, and uh, that's a studio meeting, which is all of the writers. Sam. Uh, our research team, our segment producers, essentially it's it's everyone on staff who doesn't work for the digital team and who doesn't do the field pieces. And that's when we're trying to figure out what we call the Wednesday version of whatever the big story is because all of the daily shows are going to be uh, working on a tight turnaround. So it's like, we know what the conversation is today. What are we going to be, uh, what's the most topical, thing to talk about on our show on Wednesday, and what's the approach on Wednesday that's not going to feel old.
1: For the shows that have monologues, are you, are, is everyone sort of everything? It's like, are you a monologue writer, but ultimately, you also do the other stuff, or is it completely?
8: Our show is Everyone is Everything, but I know that's somewhat atypical. I'm At
2: yeah. oh, sorry. No, please. Thank you. You're
7: so <laughs> welcome. Good. I'm with her. Um, I'm I with her. We have a
2: monologue team and a sketch team, but the most recent hires, like maybe the last three or four writers were hired, they kind of try, tried hiring us as like swings. Mm-hmm. So we have a couple people who can just kind of like float around and do whatever strikes their fancy.
0: Yeah. Uh, we have monologue at The Tonight Show. We have monologue and sketch writers. Um, but monologue bits is sort of like a grab bag term for sort of like anything that sort of falls somewhere in between, anything that you sort of have an idea that won't fit into a joke. So.
3: And ours is a little different because we have the correspondence as well, which, like might, which is like Roy Wood Jr., Michael Costa. We have like six different correspondents. So they might do a chat with, we call them chats, with Trevor at the desk. So we'd have the headline plus maybe an act two chat or sometimes even like a pre-taped sketch. But everyone does everything. So it just depends on what you're needed on that day.
1: Um, I was going to then go to after lunch, but while we're here, what do you guys usually eat for lunch?
3: <laughs> Our lunch is free. Um, we get free lunch every day, which is awesome. So it's catered.
2: Um, Do you get to choose it, or it's just whatever shows up. It's
3: whatever shows up, but they always have a good variety. Like there's always a good vegetarian option, a good meat option, a salad, a soup, and a dessert, and a fruit platter, which I never touch. And, and follow up: Are you guys hiring? <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> Not currently. Okay. Good. Okay. But, cool. I was asking yeah. for a friend. I can sneak you in during lunchtime. We have free
7: lunch every Monday and Thursday, which is second place to four days a week. Oh, and, and Fridays. Party Fridays. Okay, yeah, so we have, party Fridays. We have actually very great food moments, but they're really expressive because we, we have a nutritionist. So, <laughs> so they make sure we're healthy. Um, but we have Pizza Fridays. But otherwise, I go to Hudson Market.
5: <laughs> yes, and, Hudson and Market. We, on, on show days, we eat after the taping because we tape at like noon thirty and so because the, the edit is is really intensive on Jesus on and Marrow. And so like we'll do the taping and then and then we have lunch, which I think is a little atypical.
7: Yes. We also have um, donuts for breakfast for breakfast yeah, Mondays, yeah, Mondays and Thursdays. Yeah. We we're like we just like
5: food. Yeah we're our <laughs> our stuff, the thing that characterizes us is being inches from death. <laughs> 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 That's the commonality. <laughs>
6: Yeah, our food is every man for themselves. <laughs> Fuck you. Oh, we said we might not. Huh, 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 sorry. Uh, pretend like it's on TV and it got bleeped. Uh, Bleep. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> uh, we, you know, you, you have lunch that's catered on uh, on show days because we're we eat in the rewrite room on show days. But yeah, uh, you either can order something delivered or you can do something called. Cooking and packing a lunch—I'm not familiar, uh, but uh, we are in the same building, so so Hudson Market is also a frequent uh, destination if I want to get outside air. Again, whatever that
3: is. And you guys have eaten lunch right? before, right? Like, <laughs> you guys know how it works. Food. You have more food, questions for food. us. No, that was kind of okay.
1: So, lunch ends. What do you do from after lunch to pre show? What is the sort of process that are you sort of rewriting? Is it sort of just news come in in waves and you sort of recirculate? Is there what is the sort of next push of a day?
2: We have a rehearsal every day at 4.15, and we, um, we turn in a last batch of monologue jokes at 3.15, and then someone at our show goes and gets a bunch of tourists from the NBC gift shop at our building, and we ask them if they want to see a taping, and they're from, like, Holland, so they're like, okay. Like, they have no idea what's going on, and, like, 40 of them come into our studio, and then Seth reads, like, 30 monologue jokes to them, and we only need about 10 to make a monologue, and so we basically choose our monologue jokes based off of the reactions of a bunch of Republicans from... Australia. Yeah, exactly, (laughs) Holland. Uh, And then we'll, like, read, like, other sketches that Seth is doing. We'll read it, too. So that's kind of, like, what we're doing pre-taping is kind of, like, a little bit of a dry run and trying to guess off of those people's reactions what our audience's reaction might be.
3: Uh, We rehearse at 3.30 every day, and um, we don't bring any audience in. It's just, like, people who wrote on the piece and producers um, and then, like, the camera crew guys and usually if we can make the camera crew laugh because they like haven't been involved in the process at all then we know the joke is good and then after that we go into rewrite which can last from like you know four to six depending on how much and you're in the rewrite room if you were assigned to that piece that day so you're just kind of in a small room with trevor the head writers the producers we just project the script up onto the wall and we just like rewrite it all together
0: um, the writers on our show, something interesting is they're also the producers of those sketches, so uh, depending on the day it can be really different. Some days you're helping out with someone else's, they, they need some more jokes for something, um, and sometimes it's a crazy mad dash to pull something together at the last minute. Um, One thing that Jimmy's really great at is doing impressions. So, if there's something ridiculous that happens to someone the night before, we will often hear, oh, he's interested in doing an impression of this person. And it's kind of surreal how, in a few hours, the the props and the costume scene can turn around these full replicas of sets and hair pieces and sometimes prosthetics. Um, So, that's sort of if you are responsible for that sketch, you're spending a
7: lot of that day sort of pulling that all together.
5: I once again defer to Z-Way.
7: <laughs> I'm Z-Way. I'm a black woman. <laughs> so wait, what's the question again?
1: We're just talking about now pre-show.
7: Pre-show, yeah. They, it's they're live to tape like for a lot of it.
5: Yeah, I mean we don't uh, we uh, we don't rehearse. We don't
7: rehearse.
5: <laughs> and we yeah, because so much of so so much of our show is improvised by the hosts on the stage. So like so much of what. Gets done pre-show, whether it's like writing graphics into jokes or um, you know f- figuring the arc of the piece will get done during the tapings while we're watching, being like, okay, like we, I think we might be the only show that. The writers are like, while the hosts are talking, are like writing down, like, "Oh, there should be a graphic here," and then the graphics team makes it, and they all get dropped in and post. Instead of like at other jobs where you write it and it accompanies the joke, we have to hear what the joke is first. Yeah,
7: they're driving the machine. Yeah,
5: for sure. Yeah, and we're all we're kind of uh, trailing behind it, picking up the mad, you know, like in the Mad Max uh, wake.
7: Exactly. It's just like Mad Max. Yeah.
5: (laughs) We've got Mad Max on our show.
8: Uh, our show's a, a little split in the afternoons. Um, half of the writers about usually end up working on like, long-term pieces or field stuff or guest stuff, and then the other half focus on rewriting the show for that day. But we also are very, we try to have the show be at, be as current as it possibly can be considering it tapes at, you know, 5.30 or 6. Um, so, you know, if something happens in the news, which happens more and more, you know, if, if at Trump's pants fall down, (laughs) uh, then everyone will get called off of what they're working on to write on that because that's the big thing. So that, you know, it, it should be uncommon, but it happens a lot.
6: So on days preparing for the show, on this this hypothetical Monday, we were given an assignment for what the act one, the most topical act of the show would be, and it was due at 5 p.m. The night before the show, we did a table read. And then on a show day, we have a rehearsal at 12.30. Uh, It is uh, not an audience, uh, just writers, segment producers, and that... uh, ends around 1, and then we go into Sam's dressing room, and we have a rewrite from 1 to 4.15, and uh, and that's a real, like, the, the night before, we may have had uh, kind of bigger structural notes, like, I'm not sure that this argument is coming across correctly, or um, this this part feels redundant, or, or, or something like that, and then uh, I think this is probably under borrowed from the Daily show, because so you know, that's where Sam and all of our EPs came from as well. Uh, we project it up on a screen, and it's a real line-by-line line, uh, rewrite, but typically what the main goal of our rewrite is is to cut time out of the show. Usually, we're running over by about like eight minutes.
7: The one really nice thing about not rewriting is that we're never driven by Trump news. So if he does anything crazy, like fall off a bridge, we're never like, there's no h- hustle for that. We just, the show is what the show is that morning. Yeah.
1: Yeah. yeah. So, and then during, the, are you all watching the show or by the time the show's happening or like moving on to the next day?
3: Um, we once the script is locked, which is about half an hour before taping, we're allowed to leave. But usually, like if you wrote something that day and you're excited to see if a joke works, a couple of us will like hang out and watch it together, um, depending on just what what's on the show that day.
7: Show day is the most exciting day of my um, week. It's so exciting. I actually love watching the show because I just get to hear these like masters riff.
5: Mm-hmm. Yeah. For sure. So yeah, so we we have to be very present. Like all the writers are at the taping because like stuff kind of gets sculpted afterwards.
6: Same as cat for us. If you want to stick around, you can. But once the script is locked and we leave Sam's dressing room, uh, recently there was a study that said that if you're in a conference room for two hours or more, the CO two levels start to rise, and it and it, it impacts your brain function. And I've never felt more sure of a study without having any idea how science works, because <laughs> after four hours in a dressing room, you feel very uh, depleted and kind of um, crazy. And sometimes you've like had to really go to bat for certain things, um, which is encouraged at our show to really. Fight to keep something in or, or make an argument um, against something as well. And so uh, if you're really proud of something, maybe you'll stick around for the taping, but uh, three of our writers schedule therapy to be right after that. Uh, <laughs> uh, not so much that it's a, it's a devastating uh, time, but just that there are so few hours in your day that are office hours that are open, and so any opportunity where you can kind of get something done when uh, a doctor is around is really wonderful. <laughs>
1: Let's take a break for a second from the comedy to be so very serious. Look, if I know you, which I do, I know you've been frustrated with your phone service. We've all been there. So I've got some honestly pretty cool news for you. There's a new phone service out called Visible. Long story short, you got unlimited everything, including data, at speeds up to 5 megabits per second, on Verizon's 4G LTE network. For, dramatic pause, 40 bucks a month. Dun, dun, dun. There are no annual contracts, no hidden fees, and no stores. That's right, you never have to walk into a phone store again. Thank God I hate stores. Learn more at Visible.com. You're all writers and artists in your own right, but uh, obviously. But uh, these are shows with the names of the hosts and the title. How do you sort of balance trying to be... Expressing yourself with sort of the job of saying a thing that someone else is going to say. And and if you have any examples of like getting something on me, like that's me and I'm happy that that's out there.
2: I think what the, I think to me, I think the coolest challenge. I don't know if you guys feel this way, but I think what I like about writing for Late Night is, is this really neat exercise of trying to find the sweet spot of marrying your voice and the host's voice. Because you don't want to write where it's like not something you care about or you believe, and you're just doing an impression of someone. But it also can't sound too much like you. So I think that challenge and that kind of that constant intellectual exercise is what I like the most yeah. about it. But I do feel like every like I wrote. Um, I, every once in a while, I think like your, jo- your voice like sneaks through. and yeah, I wrote a monologue joke not too long ago, and then I had a, a, um, the show tweeted it, and then I got screenshots from other people being like, it was this you? <laughs> it was about white men not being great, so that's pretty on brand for me. But yeah, so I think like every once in a while, I'm sure that's happened. Every, every once in a while, you're like, that's very me, and anybody who knows me would know that that is about me. But, um, but yeah, I think that's like kind of neat, trying to find that intersection. Yeah.
6: Yeah, it's it's a it would be a much harder job if I didn't feel like I had overlap in the Venn diagram of my voice and Sam's voice. It, uh it it's already hard enough to convert the news into jokes than if I you and you're already putting your voice through a machine. There are certain things that Sam uh you know, pet peeves she has with uh way that sentences are constructed or ways that she talks and you get the more longer you do it, like the more you get their voice in your head and you know what they would say and what they wouldn't say. Uh but I don't know. I mean, for me, I'm just always trying to push our show as far left as possible, um, and uh, and I feel like I'm just always like being like, let's do something really socialist. Um, and so, you know, we've had a lot of pieces that I feel proud of that have been like about like the Green New Deal or universal uh, child care, things like that. That you know, Sam, being from Canada, is. Like, oh, yeah, I forget that we don't have that stuff here. Uh, and I, I always feel proud when I feel like I've pushed the show's voice uh, into something that, like, I believe that maybe someone else wouldn't have pitched in the room.
3: For us, um, the voice is interesting because, like, you might switch from, like, writing for Trevor's voice on the headline one day and then, like, like this week I did a piece for um, Lewis Black, who's... A sixty-something-year-old, very angry white man. So, um, so it's been really a really cool exercise for me. And I also like that our show doesn't be like, okay, I'm a white girl, I can only write for Desi. Like, I write, I've written pieces for all of the correspondents, um, contributors, and Trevor. So it's been really cool. And I like that they also trust us that we're like good enough writers that we can, we know this voice would do this, this voice would do that, and Trevor's good at knowing. Okay, this is a joke I can't tell, but this is a joke like Dulce can tell. Um so it is you're kind of shifting every day and you have to shift quickly from one voice to another, but kind of like Jenny was saying, your voice is always it's in there somewhere. Like I get friends who text me if there's a, a poop joke on the show and they assume that was me.
2: But I like what Nicole said about like when you said that like you feel like proud when you know that you brought something in that maybe somebody else wouldn't have thought of. And I feel like there's a lot of talk about like diversity in writers' rooms, and I think people think of it just in terms of like I think obviously you want to have like a diverse representation, but I think it's not just for the sake of like numbers or like, I think it's like that you feel like it's, it's that there's only a limited number of headlines we're looking at every day and different people are going to see different openings in those headlines based on their life experience. And I think that that's what like you want. Like, like I feel like our, you know, like the writer's rooms I've been in that I enjoy the most are when like, Oh, I looked at that story for two hours today and tried to think of a joke. And I didn't even, th- not even that I couldn't find a good joke. I didn't even look at it the way that you were looking at it. I didn't even think of the issue that that, climate change article or that article about, you know, affirmative action or healthcare made you think of because of your the, all the steps you took to get to this writer's room.
7: Um, writing for Jesus and Mero is so fun. I, I find them to be like really bombastic. So when like I wrote the Green Book sketch, uh, which oh, is that like That was awesome. You wrote that Yeah the- yeah I wrote that oh, shit. God. I don't oh, know why not we're not shit. all clapping. <laughs> oh goodness. Oh goodness. Why would you do that? Stop clapping. Um but to me, that that was just the most expressive I've ever felt because I wouldn't normally joke about like the N word and um, like jokes I'm necessarily tell. But like through them, I get to have this new perspective and there's this new world of like really ultra offensive, like really smart satirical jokes. So writing with them, I think, is fantastically fun.
5: They they have like a real wide strike zone. Yeah. what they're willing to do because they're they're so smart and so silly that like the the breadth of references is like totally bonkers and really fun to like get to pitch them stuff in all different walks of life and I uh, and I, I personally like making them like react to like just real dork stuff totally and, or like sneaking in we that are each story of the show has like a title card that's some kind of pun or just like little joke and like the dumber and more intricate the pun I bet I feel about my or the more intricate the pun, the better I feel about myself where I used to work at for at last week's night with John Oliver and then I took great pride in the dumbest jokes I could get Mm -hmm. like just I there was a joke that I wrote last year I don't even remember the setup but the punchline was John in kind of like a surly Brooklyn accent saying suck my dog dick that is a very strange ad because first of all if you're going to have a talking dog
3: why would you make him such a gruff asshole hey I'm Tony and I'm mad the humane society's a bunch of losers and if you disagree you can suck my dog dick
5: and I
1: was like I've done it I've earned my pay this Yeah, yeah dude
7: it's so fun
1: uh, Jenny, you spoke about diversity in writer's rooms. So, Josh, I got to ask, what's it like being a straight white man in late night? Yeah. Very white guy of you to center me in this
5: conversation, Jesse. I will defer to Z-Way. Yeah, Z-Way. way what's it like for me to be a straight white guy in a writer's room?
7: As a black woman, I would say that your experience is
5: fine. You don't get bullied enough... But you do get bullied sometimes. I do get bullied some. Yeah. yeah. Um, no, I, th- I think it's. Um, I've had a wonderful experience overall. Yeah, that's and right. I, I think like. Yeah,
7: what are I, you going to say, Josh?
5: <laughs> I think like everyone here, there are um, there are ups and downs and excitements and, and setbacks. But I think see I've had probably of this panel like a singularly privileged and straightforward time of it. Uh, yeah.
1: <laughs> Good answer No, but I, I think In the past year You've had a lot of sort of late night Variety shows canceled That were fronted by women uh, Busy Phillips, Sarah Silverman Michelle Wolfs, Robin Thede uh, Where you work, z uh, I guess the question is uh, what, the, what the hell why, uh, why, What is uh, If you were to say what the problem is Besides the obvious what, why, why, what is, why is it being uh, Why is it a problem
6: I'll voice a little pet peeve I have uh, writing for a woman-fronted show, which is whenever a new uh, woman-hosted show comes onto the scene, it only gets talked about in context of Full Frontal. It's always like, it does this, and Full Frontal does this differently. You know, Busy's on a couch, and Sam stands. Like, it, you know, real deep comparisons that are really thought-provoking and important. And it's it's frustrating for there to be a... A separation just in the general conversation when you're talking about what the late night sphere is like, who who's who is talking, and what do they have to say? Uh, With the exception of Robin's show, which had like in twenty something episodes in the first season, twenty four episodes. Yeah, Uh, like Michelle Wolf had ten. Busy had you know four episodes a week, but only for a few months. It. People uh, need time to figure out. Uh, late night is a machine. It, I mean, it, it's everyone does it a little differently, as you could hear. And I think that people who uh, write for these shows, especially who were there from the beginning, like Kate and uh, and uh, Jenny, like it takes time to get settled. It takes like a while. And I think that people are kind of impatient. They expect for a woman to have like this unique and immediate spot where they totally understand what they're doing which in my opinion in the case of like Busy and Robin uh, they they did <laughs> like I thought from the get-go those shows were really unique and excellent but I think people just kind of evaluated in a different sphere which is uh, a bummer
3: yeah, and I think if we learned anything from the election our country is still way more misogynist than we might want to admit and people bring that to female comics like I, like I know some people do stand-up like just doing stand-up too like you know, women's voices are really shrill. People don't want to hear them. Um, like, that's... I mean, that's just, like, there's still, I think, an adverse... uh aversion to a, a woman who's trying to be funny. They use that word, try. Like, there's a baseline assumption a man's going to be funny, and yet, for some reason, women still have to prove themselves that they can be funny. They're not just automatically accepted as funny. So I think women hosts just have a harder job to get the viewership and to, like, get a fair... Shot. um, I just think the audience, there's a lot of even subconscious misogyny that people may not even be aware of that they have when they view these shows. Because I think a lot of them probably came down to like, I mean, ratings and numbers. If people weren't watching them, then that usually leads to cancellations. I think, you know, people should watch those shows and support them if you want them to keep being on TV.
8: I think there's also this false and, and frustrating concept that there's lady news. And there's just news. And it all impacts everybody. Like, I, I I pitch on sports constantly for my show because that's what I know a lot about. If we had to pitch something about The Bachelor or Bachelorette, I would not know. A, I, there's a racial, probably. I don't know. I don't know anything about those shows or things that are considered, like, the lady subject. So I think there's still even a then when those shows do get a chance, they're evaluated, again, by a different criteria because it's like, well, this is where I'll get my lady topics and then I'll get everything else from the neutral, which is male. And it's, it's, you know, so let's fix that and then we'll be fine.
7: (laughs) I know a lot about The Bachelor and Real Housewives. I wear a lot of pink. I'm not wearing pink today, but I love feminine stuff. I think that late night is reflects the world we live in. How many women CEOs are there? Right? It's not like this is some digression in society. So I think it's reflective of that. I think we need more shows led by women that are different in every way. Some can be super pink and about Bachelor. Some can be about sports. Some it doesn't really. We just need more opportunities for women, and we don't need to pigeonhole ourselves in this world where it's like you have to be. Be a certain accessible self, like you have to be your true self, and that's all you can do as a performer and a writer, and that'll connect with people, but women need to be given those opportunities to make shows.
1: Uh, Donald Trump is uh, the president. Um, <laughs> what? I know, it's crazy. Uh, he's a uniquely difficult person to make fun of, in so much as he is so apparently what he is, and the exact same way over and over again. Um, your different shows are differently political, but uh, you all are dealing with that. How do you personally approach it? How do you feel your shows approach it? Uh, how do you hope to continue approaching it as we sort of look into the, the next election?
3: I'll say one thing that's been fun and kind of refreshing for The Daily Show is that since Trevor's not American, like he's not a Democrat, he's not a Republican, so it's kind of nice that we don't really take a side because he always wants to like learn as much as he can about every side of all the issues um of course he tends you know we tend to lean toward the democratic party because they're not monsters but um <laughs> but it is like but he very much is like you know he's he's you know super smart and knows a lot of, more about american politics than a lot of americans but he's always he's like tell me both sides what are the democrats doing What the republicans doing um and we write our script like we never say like we or us if trevor's speaking he'd say Americans, um, so it's kind of nice being able to have that distance and see his perspective of not being so deep in it. Like as someone who's been like you know raised as a Democrat to actually be like, oh right, yeah, maybe I'll sit back and look at both sides with him too, make sure I'm not being biased and I'm being we're all being objective as we like approach Trump and um, what's happening in the news.
2: I feel like it's really easy. Trump is so many things, and I'm probably not, I'm not going to say anything groundbreaking here because he's he's everywhere, and we think about it. it's hard to not think about him all the time. But I think that there's there's two levels of Trump. I think there is like the the stuff where he like had toilet paper stuck to his shoe, and look, the wind blew his hair, and then there's um, his really insidious um, immigration policies and him trying to roll back protections uh, for LGBTQ people, and I think um, I. Tr- I mean, I feel like we're all trying at at my job and I'm I'm sure like other places I like, it's easy to get caught up in the toilet paper on the shoe. And I'm not saying I haven't written a joke about it, but I think like every once in a while I try to like recenter and be like, well, what is it that I really, if I've got airtime and I can put a joke on TV, what do I want to try to write? The joke about. And there was, like, the weekend that Michelle Wolf hosted the correspondence Dinner, and everybody got really upset about her eyeshadow joke um, and spent 48 hours talking about that. But at the same that same weekend, Trump held a rally where he asked if there were any Hispanics in the room. And, and then he goes, okay, good. And I thought, ooh, that is... I happen to be Hispanic. And I thought, this, my weekend is about that. That's scary to me, and that's real. And so, like, I came in on Monday and wrote a piece about it, because I thought, like, ooh, let's try to keep our eye on the ball.
1: What do you guys hope... Uh- as we go into the next election, and, and you, it, I mean, in many ways it started with the 20 whatever Democratic nominees. What do you hope from your shows or just in general late night as we try to cover another election, especially learning what we learned from the last election?
7: So I think part of my self-care is that um, as a black woman I don't like to think about Trump. And that's the nice thing about working at Jesus and Marrow, is that we don't necessarily think about Trump that often. And when it comes to the the election, it's we have candidates on our show and it's like Cory Booker dunking on Jesus and Marrow, which is light and fun and not too in the weeds of you know, tragedy. I completely
0: agree with that. I think there's something really very cool and privileged about a position where you're able to really bring some name recognition and some light to people's policies and it, it does sometimes feel like giving people a little bit of vegetables with their, with their dinner but um, there's something really fun about being able to show a different side of a candidate or introduce people to a candidate in a way that maybe involves more penis jokes than the debate usually would but um can really also give a candidate a chance to express their policies and how they feel about different issues and sometimes even where they stand relative to other candidates
8: and just more people in the news gives you more fodder to talk about because again like yeah the thing about trump is that he's he's actually a very repetitive subject to write about it's it's all like the policies may change the people around him may change but like the subject wise it can all be very very much the same it's It's a straight line. There's not a lot of hills and valleys to him. So uh, having... Like, it's just a delight to be in election season because there's just a slate of new people with varied funny things about them that you can finally, you know, kind of stretch yourself a little bit uh, in a fun
6: way. I wouldn't call writing about the election season a delight, but I would... (laughs) I would say that... um, there's something very cool about writing for TV. Like there's like, there's just, I love my job. I love that I get to, instead of putting things on Twitter, I get to put things in Sam's mouth. Sam is someone who people listen to. Uh, and she's someone who is open-minded and willing to hear what her staffers care about and be, uh, and, and be like, yeah, okay, let's do that. Like I had pitched something after the abortion uh, policies, went through in Alabama and Georgia of like a sex ed for senators thing and we completely scrapped what we were working on to do uh, kind of like literally an explainer on what abortion is and I don't know that any other host would have like felt comfortable doing that and I don't know if I if Sam would have thought that she would be but in the moment it was like yeah I'm being sold on this let's do it and I think that uh, I watched the last election, uh, not having a job and not having a voice, and I, I just, I don't know what I like want out of the show's coverage for the election, but I know that like on the day to day, I get to participate in that, and that's the most exciting thing to be like, I'm one of those people who gets to uh, pitch a point of view and have an opinion.
1: All your shows are, are different in uh, some different days a week or some are more political or less political. Uh, as we wrap up, what, what is a late night show for any of you in 2000, whatever year this is? What, it, what is? what does it mean for a show to be a late night show? I mean, people watch. some people are watching it in the morning or a week later. What is late night?
3: I mean, it's, we kind of grapple with that. Too, because it does seem like a lot of my friends say they watch the show, but they're watching it on YouTube on their morning commute. Um, We now have like a podcast edition too, where you can listen to the show. I mean, I do think there is something nice about a show that you know does air late at night. That's how the Emmys define it. So that's how we care about it. But I do think the, I mean, the world is digesting it differently, and it does seem to be. um, It used to be like, oh, you know, are you talking about politics? But there's other shows, you know, like DC Samero. you guys are not necessarily talking about Trump and politics and doing different things. So um, I think it's just something topical. I think people do turn, tune in, though, like if something happens in the news, they go to these late night shows to hear what we're going to say about them. Um, so I do think there's an element to that, that people kind of want to use you to reflect on the world. It, like it helps them absorb what's happening in the world. If they're able to hear someone else's take on it, that's a little lighter and funnier and easier to digest.
6: Yeah, I mean, I think
3: when we're talking about,
6: like, female hosts and things like that, it's like, well, we have always defined what a late-night show is based on what these male-fronted late-night shows that were, you know, every night summary. At the end of the day, there's a guest, there's a monologue, there are desk bits, there are sketches, it's personality-driven, you know, that's that's the way that late-night has been defined in the past, and I think that... All it really has to be is, like, some type of personality talking about some type of culture. Usually, to me, the reason why, a, like, a late-night show is different than, like, a daytime talk show is that it's not as news is breaking. It's, like, at the end of, you know, at the end of the work day, there's there's some type of summary feel to it. I think it's a very broad umbrella, and, and there are so many shows that fit that that people don't necessarily consider to be, like, a straight late-night show. But, yeah, to me, it's, like like kind of who cares. <laughs> uh, if you want to call your show a late night show then like uh, great. I'll write a packet for it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the uh, Oh, please.
8: Oh, no, I just saying the the way that we sort of talk about it in our writers room is that we're an extension of the conversations people were having that day. So, it's not that we're like those conversations tend to be political right now but they don't necessarily, it's not prescriptive. They don't have to be like, you know, we did a, uh, we talked about that, that insane helicopter rescue where the woman like spun out of control, right? Because that's what people, if you have not watched the video, you must, she's fine. You can laugh at it. It is so funny.
3: Um, You tie her to the rotors again, again. And it's so important that you believe me, even after all that,
1: she's fine. The fire captain. She's fine, jo- she's fine, y'all.
8: It, it, but that's she's what people fine. were talking about that day. We were like, this is all over the internet. The video's amazing. And she's okay, which means we get to talk about it. So. Uh, she's you know, dead. You
7: don't get to talk about it. Those that's are the rules of comedy. That's what yeah, would another... be sad
8: about that. <laughs> that's what would be sad. Uh, but yeah, so it tends to be political. But again, it can be, it's whatever that national conversation is.
5: I also think there's, like, I, I think, bang off when Nicole said, it's, like, comedy forward, I think, is something I like about the late-night genre. Like, a daytime show is, like, conversational, and I feel, like, a little more encumbered by, like, politeness of, like, who's watching this? It's probably people folding laundry. And, uh, you know what I mean? Or, like, people, uh, whatever. It's There's just, like, a politeness to it, and I kind of like that we have a little more freedom to, like, react to things in an uncouth way that would be, like, a little weird for, like, Michael Strahan to do at like noon or whatever, or Kelly Ripa to to like Kelly Ripa being bleeped left and right. <laughs>
7: And with Jesus and Meryl, I kind of see it as like this deconstruction of late night, actually. And so it has a typical structure. Like you have the space for like the headline or the monologue. Then you have the field piece. Then you have like maybe a sketch. And you have the good night. But then it's still doing it in like this revitalizing way where it feels totally fresh. Because they're literally like making it up on the spot with the with the machinations of like, well, the late night runs with a scripto. Like you use the program with the teleprompter and you talk about it, you know. So that's really interesting.
4: Mm-hmm.
1: Okay, I want to talk a little bit more about this new phone service called Visible. See, a lot of phone services these days are a bit sneaky, not unlike John Turturro's character in Mr. Deeds. They tack on hidden fees to your phone bill and hope you don't notice. Not Visible. With Visible, you get unlimited everything, including data at speeds up to five megabits per second on Verizon's 4G LTE network for just forty bucks a month, flat every time. That's it. Transparency is like their whole deal. No tricks, no shenanigans, no BS, which I gotta say is uh, pretty chill. If you want to learn more, check out visible.com. Now, back to the show. So we're going to turn it over to some questions from the audience. Thank you for those who wrote uh, said questions. Uh, What was your hardest episode to write for?
2: The day after the election. (laughs) I, yeah, we all walked in the day after the election and then hugged each other. Oh. I know. And then I'm like, yeah, and then um, I just remember looking at my screen and trying to formulate a, a joke of any kind. Our head writer, Alex Bays wrote um, my favorite monologue joke that day. The joke was um, Donald Trump was elected the 45th president of the United States, and then something, something, something punchline.
4: He yeah. was like, what? He typed? Because I felt like.
2: Yeah, man, what do you say about that? I would love to hear the punchline. I don't know what it is. So yeah, I wrote all of my monologue. This has never happened before. I had a whole week where all of my monologue jokes that whole week were rejected because everything was so angry. And then the last day of the week, I got one in, and it was about a monkey who'd had a boob job. (laughs)
4: Because I did not know how to
2: write yet about a new reality.
6: I think like week three of the Kavanaugh uh, stories were really tough for me. we're a show that that's like our bread and butter uh, we feel an obligation and we're passionate about it and angry about it like but also it's like not you know there aren't a ton of men host like who maybe feel super comfortable talking about that perspective so around week three uh, my boss Melinda we had like a just meeting and she was like hey Nicole can you hang back for a second and i was like oh this is amazing actually cuz i'm about to get fired and she was like and she was like yeah i just wanted to ask um are you okay <laughs> and i was like oh you can tell and she was like yeah you seem um like you're doing bad and i was like yes i am but the way that we kind of described it on our show is like you have um you have like a cycle of like exhaustion and feeling burnout with politics and feeling like you can't make a joke and you don't know how you're gonna go forward and it's just when you're at your low point, someone else is feeling like more energized and your cycles don't sync up. And that's what's really beautiful about being part of a staff.
3: Yeah, I think We all get our period at the same time though. Yeah, I'm cycled up with Trevor.
4: Yeah,
0: I think I was just going to say I think when something really sad happens when it's I, when there's something that you don't joke about, um, whether it's like a tragedy or um I think those are the times when I've found that I have a lot of trouble because I don't have a point of view, I don't have a take it's just sad, and um, those are I think the moments when it's a little tricky to realize that what your job is is often to put people to bed that night with a smile on their face and to make them feel some degree of joy and I think that's something that those that's when it becomes really hard and when I think we hope to rise to the occasion because those are the times when people really need to laugh mm-hmm.
3: and there was there were just two my very first day was. Right after the Charlottesville Nazi rally. Um, that was like my day one of work. Um, so like going in being like, I don't know what you guys want me to do with this. Um, and then the second one, kind of similar to what you were talking about, was the, um, the Las Vegas shooting. Those are like the two days that stand out to me as we all walked in being like, what the fuck are we going to write today? Like, because there's certain things you just can't make fun of and you can't find the funny in it. And they're just so devastating. The hardest day of work for me was really tragic.
7: It was the day that we didn't put Beyoncé's homecoming in the monologue. And that was so hard for me, because as a Beyoncé stan, I was like, wow, you don't respect my culture. (laughs) And that's the wild thing about the show that we write on is that we all we we kind of acknowledge the world is ending, <laughs> YOLO. So, like you get over it, you know. It's all it's all with bliss's <laughs> ending. Um, so we just move on, and we have we keep it very light. Even the dark stuff is light.
5: Yeah, I I kind of love that Jesus um, and Mara's like ability and willingness to like be really funny and candid about things without feeling a need to like explain. Like we we covered the story of. Um, Trump covering or asking for the John McCain boat to ship boat <laughs> ship yeah the 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 John McCain uh schooner is that a kind of boat um tv covered up while he was there and and like the commentary on Trump on the show was limited to like oh yeah Trump oh no I'm sorry it was the Jared Kushner interview where he was talking about it, it was the same story though uh as we ran it, and he the holding commentary on Trump was like oh yeah trump's dumb racist though like and that's like so refreshing to just be able to to do that I, and I yeah. think they they feel no like obligation to like hear people out when they've run out of uh, goodwill with the people in the news not Jesus and Marrow.
4: yeah
7: my favorite thing that Desus says about Trump is that Trump doesn't have very very good songs he only has a couple hits and everything else is trash mm-hmm. and so just approaching him like that oh, I'm so healthy
5: <laughs> I- I, I'm coming from also, like, my, my previous job, I would sit and watch documentary footage and, like, weep softly in my office, like, <laughs> several times a year. That was, like, part of the job. I remember, this is truly, you guys will think much less of me as a person, but the one of the hardest days I was, and the topical, I mean, like, mass shootings are so hard because people expect you to talk about it, and then, but there's nothing funny to say. It's, like... Just repeated horror, Uh, but I was watching. We I was working on a story about um, opioid addiction and like pharmaceutical uh, proliferation of high strength opioids, and I was watching like a uh, it was a documentary with footage of like a support group of guys who are trying to get clean or clean as judgmental, but trying to stop using opioids in rural Maine, and they were all fishermen. And I remember one guy said. he goes, they were like, when did you start using and what, what brought you to these pain pills? And the guy went, my legs were crushed by a lobster boat. And I remember laughing and then shutting my computer and going home, being like, I'm broken. This is, something snapped in me and I need to restore it with sleep and love and petting my dog and kissing my wife because there I have, my, apparently my empathy muscles were cramped and it was very bad. It was like deeply, it was like I, I looked into myself and was like, I do not like what's in there. <laughs>
6: I watched that documentary, too. Yeah! <laughs> we did something on the Sackler family, yep. and, I, <laughs> and I also watched that horrible documentary. <laughs> Don't recommend. It's upsetting. Uh,
1: conversely, uh, someone writes, what has been your, your favorite episode or moment working on in late night? And sort of sub-question, uh, do you have any stories with famous people? Ooh. <laughs>
7: My favorite was when AOC came on the show for the premiere, because to me, it's like these Mero, AOC, they're all from the Bronx, and it's like this Bronx renaissance in this country, and it's like this one epicenter of culture is like spreading throughout the nation, and to see that in technicolor from entertainment and then politics in one space is like very powerful. And famous people, Lil Nas was great. He's great skin, man.
0: <laughs> we had Pete Buttigieg on the show, um, who is just a delight. Um, And we got to do a segment with him that was previously done with Obama, which was Slow Jam the News, uh, which is just a a delight of a segment, generally. Um, But basically, for those of you who haven't seen one, um, the candidate sort of gets an opportunity to present a little bit of their policy, and then Jimmy, accompanied by the roots, slow jam it. So they make it really slow and really sexy, and they have lines like, yeah, Pete wants to satisfy all your needs. And it just, it, it goes in a whole series of really really crazy directions. Um, And that was, it was a really fun challenge because not only were we working with his actual policy and those sides of it, and then also writing the most ludicrous jokes in these very weird, I can't believe this is my job moments. Um, But then we were sitting with Buttigieg's campaign team sort of talking out different things about, well, he'll say he, he'll say that he, uh, he wants to satisfy your needs, but he won't call it, we, he won't say Peter Piper's packing a big pickled pepper because big is too suggestive. And we said, okay, what if it was just a pickled pepper? And we really just delved in there. Um, so uh, if you're wondering what goes into a presidential campaign, um, that was that was a pretty surreal moment.
4: This is a season for boldness and
5: heart. It's the job of a leader to shine light in the dark. The country is aching For
4: and
5: is how we slow jam the news oh yeah
4: give it up for mayor pete
5: um, one really gratifying moment this year our gratifying episode i think it was our third episode of the season where we started with it was like a long segment on that the r kelly interview i so the episode started with the r kelly interview which is like Really unsettling, and I think a lot of people found it very like difficult to watch. And I th- the the commentary that the guys made was like so funny and deft, and like looked at the issues without bringing people to a painful place. It felt like, and then right after that, we did a segment about Momo, the fake uh, the fake hoax of like that ch- statue of a chicken that tells teenagers di- or children to kill themselves. And there was like so there was like this deep dark story about. R. Kelly and the uh, abuses he's allegedly perpetrated, and I say allegedly to cover my own self, not because I don't believe it. Um, and then, uh, and then there was like this moment where they showed the statue of Momo that that like was this viral hoax that was like kill yourself children and the in unison Jesus and mero went does momo have titties and it like made me laugh so hard and also i felt i like predicted that in a meeting that that was the that would be an area of interest for the show like does this statue the suicide statue have huge boobs and it just like felt very like it like the ground we covered over a period period of 10 minutes was really um it felt really good, and it felt really natural to be able to do both those things. And then that was also, um, they made up a song about, with John Legend uh, about a, a sex thing that I don't need to rub in your faces now. But you can Google it. It's really funny.
7: <laughs> it was called Chocolate Galaxy.
5: Mm-hmm. So, you know. <laughs> if you don't know, why are you at a comedy panel? <laughs> if you can't intuit what a chocolate galaxy is. I-, I had to
6: explain to Terry Crews what the movie Swim Fan was. <laughs> I wrote a joke with just name-checking Swim Fan because have some respect and I won't explain it's a movie. And uh, and Terry Crews was like the nicest person I've ever met. We don't have a ton of celebrities on the show. We occasionally have them on to do like little sketches. And he very politely was like, what is that? And I was like,
3: sir, it would be my honor. I was like, I had don't have any really celebrity stories, but uh, there was one bit I was proud of. I did with um, a chat with Desi. I wrote with another writer, Lauren. And it was about all the female candidates running. It's like record number of female candidates. And we looked at how the press is covering them and how the press and media have covered female candidates historically and just how it's usually generally pretty shitty. And um, so Desi's chatting with Trevor at the desk about it. And there was one thing where... Um, they used, like, the term vaginal politics in something, like, years ago, and so we wrote a joke for Desi being, like, vaginal politics makes it sound like we're, like, actually voting, like, with our vaginas, and, like, yes, I can hold a pencil with mine, but, like, and then, and then I pitched this, like, line that I didn't think Trevor or anyone would let be on the show, that after that, Desi looks down and talks to her vagina, and she's, like, Yes, I know you're hungry. We're almost done. Look, there is just something about a woman running for president that brings all the fans. Sad- and I just and like I was so proud and like like Trevor and our head writer, they were like, I mean, yeah, we'll try it. We'll see if it works. And they did it, and it killed. And I was just so I was like, I'm so proud to work for a show that lets our correspondents talk to their vaginas. Like, Do
1: you guys have any? I
8: I mean I guess we. We occasionally, uh, when we go live for uh, like election nights, um, you know, sometimes our, our guests will want to come and be like, oh, can we sit with the writers while they write? And I think that they think that it's very funny, <laughs> but it's really just a tense room of 14 people very quietly typing on their MacBooks, not talking to each other. <laughs> so uh, I think watching uh, Hugh Laurie be disappointed
4: in his experience... <laughs>
8: was very fun for me. (laughs) Do you have any?
2: Um, I occasionally get to do stuff on the show with um, an old, old friend of mine, and I feel like that is probably any time I get to do that. My friend Amber Ruffin. um, We're friends from, like, 13 years ago. We met when we were both um, just slogging it out in our 20s trying to do comedy and um, it feels like so much of this job can be so thinky and analytical and like looking at facts and trying to bend facts into a setup for a joke or try to find an angle you haven't already heard or read on Twitter and so every once in a while I get to do something Um, In person with her and it feels like when you're connecting with an old friend it kind of feels like a a lot of that gets to fade away and for a minute you just get to get to the core of the fun and it feels like in this current political climate um, sometimes (laughs) the core of the fun can be hard to find (laughs) so it's yeah sometimes it's a delight to be like there's one time I told a joke that just bombs so hard but I was like sitting next to Seth and there's like 200 people and then I just like um, added a tagline onto it that wasn't in the script because I just thought, well, this will make Amber laugh. But <laughs> like, that's all that mattered at that point.
1: Uh, so the the last question is sort of two. I'm going to merge them. Uh, what advice do you have for people who would like to share their work but are terrified of getting in front of people slash are generally embarrassed? And uh, what advice do you have for 16-year-old aspiring comedy writers? This is the advice section of the questions. <laughs>
3: Was that 16 or 60? One person's
1: 16. I don't know the age of the first person. Let's say 60, but really would like to share their work.
2: I think if you want to share your work and you're worried about it, the most important thing to remember is whoever all of your favorite comedians are, if you think about all of the jokes that they've written that you love, for each one of those, there are a thousand that were terrible. You just didn't get to hear them because they wrote them and then were like, okay, not this one, and they kept writing. So like the people that you like that are good are good but because of practice and repetition like anybody who goes to the gym all the time is going to get swole but um, is that the word the kids say? Thank you, Z-Way, I have approval from Z-Way, but I feel like anybody who goes to the gym a lot is going to just have big muscles because they work the muscles over and over again Um, Like anybody that you admire and look up to was where you are and has thousands of terrible jokes on their hard drive, It's like so many and they're so bad Um, and so just don't worry about it, Like you're going to be great, your jokes are great and they'll get better the more you do it
8: And it's okay to feel that way, and it means that you care. It means that, like, if you're scared and you're nervous to put things out there and you're sweating, like, it means that you care, and that's good because you're doing something you care about. Like, I, I, when I started this job, we had, you know, our our first big two-week hiatus. Uh, At the end of it, we're about to come back, and my my husband came in. He's like, "What's wrong?" Because I was crying, and I was like, "What if that was all the jokes I had? What if I used it up and now I'm empty? What if I had a finite amount of jokes in my brain and that was it?" And he was like, "It's not." how anything works. <laughs> um, but, like, that's, you know, you'll always have that fear, and that's good, but don't let it stop you. Let it drive you to to punch through, and, and then the success will be amazing.
6: Yeah, I mean, we talked about, like, dark days when, like, something horrible was happening in the news, but sometimes everything's going perfectly in the news, and you get in, and you're like, ha. Huh. <laughs> not working. (laughs) Like, come on, go, go, go. Uh, I mean, you know, you can start small. You can just, like, send something to one friend and who you trust or your mom or whoever and be like, or your mom, don't send it to your mom. That's the opposite of who you want, (laughs) giving you an honest opinion. But I I think that, like, starting small with sharing, uh, you can't get better without a community. It's tough uh, to find one. Uh, And that, to me, is one of the most important things, to find people who like the things. But if you're 16... The best thing you can do is watch a bunch of stuff and see what you like. Everyone decided what they wanted their voice to be by cobbling together the things that they loved the most. And so watching a bunch of stuff that you know you're going to like, that you're not sure if you're going to like, and kind of thinking about the mechanism. A lot of people talk about when they're preparing for packets, they'll watch a show, and they'll literally write out. They'll transcribe the monologue to see what it looks like on paper. Like, oh, this kind these. This host does this kind of setups, or this this host, uh, you know, ca- count the jokes. Okay, eighty percent are about politics, twenty percent are about, you know, th- uh, what else is there? Oh God! <laughs> but you know, th- there's there's a research element to it that you, it's it's working and it doesn't feel like working, and do you? It just takes time. Uh, all of us kind of started, I think, at different, it, it, had done a different amount of things before we got into late night, but it's. I I had a similar breakdown, some like early into my job where I was like, I've had such a freelancing, like I hop from job to job. That stability felt wrong. I was like, I have health insurance. What's happening? I'm supposed to be like scared all the time and worried, and you, you just. You learn how to transform your own voice based on your surroundings, and so it'll pass. You'll move through the fear, and then you'll get scared about something else. Some other horrible thing will occur to you that could happen, and then you'll confront that. Does that help?
0: (laughs) I think some of it is also just about points, data points, having more things out there. We were sort of talking about this backstage, but... um, the less you can live or die by one thing that you have out there, the more confident you're going to be. Um, and I think that some of that is about putting out something that's not your A plus, but it's your, your B. And I'm sorry, I'm using school terminology right now, but um, I do think that some of it is just about like, you're going to have jokes that are in the bottom half of the jokes you've ever made. And that's okay too.
2: And like, the more jokes you write, the less you'll care if one is bad. Cause exactly. the percentages of the like pie is
7: the pie piece is smaller. Exactly. I think as a young writer as well, it's really hard to be yourself because you see all these people successful being themselves and you're like, well, if I do it like this, then I will have this as well. And so finding your voice as a young writer, like making sure you're trying to make yourself laugh first and foremost before you make anyone else laugh is like so crucial and so important. And writing so much, like that's the worst advice you ever get. It's like, right, that sounds so easy and so hard at the same time, but it's honestly so... It's, you just need that the most is writing a lot and if you're 16 and want to get into comedy I'm jealous I wish that I started so young like go to lots of shows do improv do stand up try everything and you might hate everything but you'll find something
5: you like yeah I, I think like do, every everybody was right And yep okay time's up I guess ah! wow okay sure yeah they silence a white man yeah and
6: that's guys. because time is up. <laughs> time I'm up. with her. I'm with
4: her. I'm with her.
5: Um, I think just like making stuff you like and showing it to people, I'm like that you're you you might not. I think it's, like, a really great, painful feeling is, like, looking back at stuff you did two years ago that you were like, this was dope, and then being, like, humiliated by it. And it's, it's like, such a good feeling because you're like, I've grown so much that I don't hate present me, I hate past me. And that's, like... <laughs> I think that's the highest level that I've achieved of self esteem is feeling good about me now and hating all the me's in the past. Like all the Kurt Vonnegut me's trailing me throughout time. I'm just like, those guys suck. I wish I could jettison
1: them forever. Future me, that's the guy. All right, that is the panel. Thank the panelists. Thank yourselves. Have a good Friday. Have a good weekend. Thank me. Jesse. All right, bye. See you later. That's it for another episode of Good One. Follow Z-Way at Z-Way, Josh at Josh Gondelman, Jenny at Jenny Hagel, Kat at Kat Radley, Nicole at N Silverberg, Kate at Sidley Kate, and Rebecca at Rebecca B Shaw. Good One is produced by Mike Comite, Justin D. Wright did our theme song. Write a review and rate the show on Apple Podcasts. Five stars. Please. And hey, if you know anyone who might like the podcast, maybe tell them what the heck. (laughs) You can email any comments, questions, or laughing around suggestions to goodonepodcast at gmail.com. I'm Jesse David Fox, and you can follow me at Jesse David Fox. We'll be back next week with a new episode and a new joke. Have a good one.
3: That was a headgum podcast.